and um, I've really appreciated listening to your teachings um, on the 24-7 leadership pathway and also we had a 24-7 leaders gathering and Lucy just stole the show with what she brought so she's just phenomenal we're really really blessed to have you with us Lucy's also a mum of three so she's been doing the homeschooling um, jig <laughs> Are they all back now, Lucy? Yes. Well, they were, but they're all for Easter. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're back for a few weeks and then they're off again. <laughs> well, they don't have to teach, which is great. Yeah, that is good. That is good. Um, well, I'll just pray for you, Lucy, Thank and we'll you. hand over. Um, before we've had uh, Brian Heasley was with us last week, last month, sorry, and he did on Abraham. And um, I know that that really spoke to a lot of us here, and lots of poignant things that he shared. And so, yeah, we just we just know that the Holy Spirit is at work, Lucy, and um, he's going to be speaking through you. So, yeah, God, we just we lift up Lucy to you today. And um, God, we thank you for who she is. We thank you for her heart. We thank you for her passion, God. We thank you for the mind that you've given her. We thank you that, um, yeah, she's someone that is able to hear from you, but also to communicate in a way that um, just captivates and just um, oozes with wisdom. And so, God, we just pray for your your Holy Spirit just to be on Lucy as we uh, yeah as we gather together. Father, I pray for every person here that's listening and those that will listen later. We just really ask that you would um, give us open hearts, give us open minds, help us to be present today and um, help us to learn from you, Jesus, and draw closer to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Cheryl. Guys, thanks so much. It's um, For those I can see, it's lovely to be with you this morning. I know last time, I was trying to remember how long ago it was, I was with you in person uh, a couple of years ago now. It was... Um, my birthday and I think I I talked for rather a long time so the, the the beauty of zoom is is that when you've had enough of me you can just um you can kick me out um but I I did laugh this morning because I looked back went back to get my the zoom link from the email and Cheryl had written that you meet at 11 a.m for teaching and breakout groups start at 11 45 p.m so I've got loads of time this morning <laughs> um I'm here for the day if you're if you're okay with that um so yeah no I, I promise I promise it's not a 12 hour it's not a 12 hour session um so yeah so I it's great to be able to join you on the God story again at a different point in the story last time I looked at uh, exile with you a bit further on in the story and so this morning, as Charles said we're going to continue on the stories of the patriarchs um so we've moved from the beginning of Genesis, uh, which sort of casts this, you know, sort of cosmic vision for the world. And then the rest of the bulk of Genesis, Genesis 12 to 50, focuses in on the life and the story of this one family that will become the people of Israel. And uh, we'll, I'll do a quick synopsis of the of the narrative in a moment. But uh, if you if you think about the storylines that are in this section of scripture, it could easily find itself in a soap opera. Um, and uh, my really my one and only really poor joke of the day will be uh, it's the ancient near eastenders um and uh we've got family feuds you've got deception and lies you've got murder plots you've got false imprisonment and this all happens in the life of one family and i think what seems even more crazy is that the covenant and the promise that brian will have talked about uh, last month that's been set up in abraham's story so god's plan ultimately to rescue and bless uh, his rebellious world is through this family this family that is full of conflict and full of lies and deception 
and hardship that this is the story where the promise and the blessing is found and I guess there's something comforting in that in a sense for us this morning that even though they are chosen by God they keep messing it up they make colossal mistakes and they're constantly it feels like constantly putting God's promises in jeopardy and God remains faithful despite their feelings to keep his promise um God is not reliant on their faithfulness but on his faithfulness to do what he said he would do um so you started with Abraham and today we're going to go through to the next couple of generations as the covenant is passed from generation to generation to the end of Genesis now I'm going to make some assumptions that you're familiar with the the narrative a little bit um I'm not what I want to do is take a slightly different approach today so I'm going to do a really quick synopsis and then we'll jump into a couple of key themes um so just to give you a rough idea of what's happening from kind of Genesis 24 through to the end and Genesis 50 so we've Abraham has had his son Isaac which I'm sure you've looked at with Brian and so around Genesis 24 before Abraham dies the key piece is securing a marriage for Isaac and Isaac marries Rebecca um, and once again uh, just like Sarah we find another barren wife um, and Isaac prays uh, for 20 years and then God answers them with twin boys but immediately there's signs of struggle in this relationship um, in Genesis 26, we see Isaac is prospering. And in this moment, God reaffirms his covenant that he gave to Abraham that would be continued through his son, Isaac. And then the twins are born, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, the younger brother, with the help of his mother, uh, tricks his brother out of his birthright in Genesis 25. And then he deceives his father Isaac to receive the blessing um, and in the midst of this deception and this conflict uh, Jacob's mother encourages him to leave home so he runs away to his uncle and on the way to visit to to stay with his uncle Laban he has his first encounter with God and here God once again reaffirms the covenant and the promise being passed to the next generation um, and so Jacob finds himself with his uncle and here he himself is deceived he ends up marrying two sisters, thinking he's going to marry one and is tricked into marrying the older sister and then eventually marries Rachel. And again, we see another story of barrenness. But in the end, Jacob has 12 sons. And in his story, he gets to a point where he decides it's time to return and reconcile with Esau. And on the way, of course, there's that, that famous encounter where Jacob wrestles with God and he gets renamed Israel in Genesis 32. Um, and he returns reconciles with his brother Esau and then he has another encounter where the promise is again affirmed and the covenant continued through Jacob and then Genesis 37 to 50 a big chunk of the text is focused on the story of Joseph which I think probably most of us are pretty familiar with this young brother who's favored by his father he's robed and uh, and becomes um I guess for obvious reasons, disliked by his own brothers. And uh, Joseph has these dreams about uh, his brothers bowing down to him and he, whether wisely or not, shares it with them. Um, and as a result, Joseph gets sold by his brothers into slavery and he's sent down into Egypt. And his story goes, as you know, from being a slave in the house of Potiphar uh, to being imprisoned, where he interprets the dreams of two other prisoners. Um, and their outcomes are very different. One ends up being restored, the other one ends up being uh, killed. And uh, 
but the one who is restored remembers Joseph and Joseph gets to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, eventually becomes the second command in Egypt during a time of famine. And it's his wisdom that saves the nation and his brothers come looking for food and are eventually reunited with Joseph. This beloved son who was thought dead is actually alive. And once again, the promise is preserved. And we end the story there with the seventy and Jacob's family moving down to Egypt. And as you know, that's where the Exodus story picks up again. So these are big characters in, in the life of faith. And I've no doubt you've all heard teachings and sermons and reflections on the life of on, on Isaac's experience, particularly his near sacrifice with Abraham. You've probably all heard teachings on the life of Jacob, around, particularly around the wrestling with God and the idea of blessing. And then, of course, Joseph, where we've heard many teachings around the idea of being the dreamer and yet holding on to the dream despite what we see around us and you know I think sometimes we read these kinds of stories in scripture and we want to be able to tie them up in a kind of neat faith package and I'm not sure that's always the point of the narrative in front of us there's also lots of things about these stories that are quite hard to get our heads around they're not very lovable characters Jacob is this you know, he's a deceiver. He gets a promise through lying and cheating. He's not exactly a model brother or, or son. And, you know, even Joseph is at the start really quite annoying. <laughs> you know, he's the annoying little brother who, you know, who, who flaunts and gloats about what he's dreamt about. It's kind of hard sometimes to recognize these stories and these personalities with what God is doing in the, in the story. And I think not all all these passages in scripture have to give us a positive message that a large part um, of the Old Testament drama doesn't find its resolution until we get to the Jesus story. And um, and so when we're reading them, it's, it's okay, I think sometimes to sit in the tension of not everything about the story feeling comfortable or not everything about the story being us being able to reconcile it in in itself, it, it, you know, in and of itself, unless we, we journey it through, which is what you guys are doing to the Jesus story and yet for some reason God's investing his plan into this family and so I just want us to look this morning at how in and through the life of this family we begin to see what God's rescue looks like not just what the plan is but actually how it gets worked out how God works in the world um, and so as I said there's loads of things we could loads of angles we could take with the text but I just want us to uh, do something this morning and uh, take a theological lens at the text and it's something called typology so it's that along the way in scripture there are patterns or themes that interact with the new testament that are all pointing us towards the gospel narrative um, and it as I was doing this for you guys it coincides with something that I've been studying at the minute and so what I want us to do this morning is to pay attention to some characters and some plots and repeated patterns and themes in this particular chunk of scripture because it's these patterns and repeated things that are little flags they're like little indicators to us that something significant is happening that is unifying the biblical narrative for us and that they weave through the story to bring it together and they speak to us about the Jesus story so I've got three themes or patterns that are present in the narrative there's one I'm going to focus on and then two at the end I'll just touch on briefly if we have time um, totally unintentionally they're all three b's um uh, i only after i did it i was like I, I i did that without even thinking about it and uh, the first one is brother conflict the second theme is barrenness and the third theme is blessing 
And so, as I've said already, each of the stories begin in barrenness. Um, and then there's a blessing that's conferred. But in the middle, there are these brother conflicts that the stories center on. Um, so I'm going to concentrate on this uh, theme for just a moment, and then we'll briefly touch on the others. Um, so this brother conflict is probably the dominant theme of each generation, isn't it? And this morning, we're going to look at Jacob and Joseph, but even Isaac, if we look at Isaac, there's Isaac and Ishmael. Now, their conflict has less narration around it, and it's largely dominated by the relationship of their mothers so between the conflict between Sarah and Hagar, um, but it's still a, a theme that's present. So if we look at, but we're going to look at Jacob and Esau, and we're going to look at Joseph and his brothers. And of course, this isn't the first brother conflict in Genesis. We can go all the way back to Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. So you can see already that this is a recurring theme of Genesis, and that's an indication that it's something to pay attention to. So if think about your own knowledge of the two stories. Okay, what I'm going to try and do is just draw out some of the similarities between the two stories. So there are these patterns that we can see start to emerge. So the first one's this. There's this, there's an ancient Near Eastern practice called primogeniture, which is basically inheritance by the firstborn. And that was an established practice. It's practiced probably still in lots of cultures. Um, and in these stories, this practice is broken. So in both the story of Jacob and Esau and Joseph, we have a younger brother who's favored over the older and who the promise is passed to over the older. And this causes a world of problems. This is the source of the problem in the conflict. So we have Isaac over Ishmael, the elder. We've Jacob over Esau, the elder. And then we've Joseph over all his older brothers as well. So that's the first similarity we can find in the stories. So the second thing I think is when we look at the overall plot, we see these similarities flowing. Both of the stories involve some sort of deception. There's a breakdown of brother relationship. There's a murder plot and there's a goat <laughs> in these stories. And that, that, believe it or not, that's significant as well. Uh, so we've Jacob who cheats his brother out of his birthright. With, and then with the help of his father, he deceit with his mother, he deceives his father using a goat skin. And then with the breakdown of relationship, Esau plots to kill Jacob. And then we look at the Joseph story and we've got Joseph whose brothers hate him because he's favored. And that's represented by his, you know, his colored robe. And then the brothers are, they plot to kill Joseph and they deceive their father, Jacob leading him to believe that Joseph is dead. And how do they deceive him? By using a dead goat. So with two goats featuring in the story. Uh, and then the third similarity that we can track is that both of these stories involve movement. So there's a separation and a departure. Both the younger brothers, Jacob and Joseph, both find themselves in a foreign land for a period of time. And then in both stories, there is a return of sorts, a reconciliation that happens. So there's uh, sort of a mini exile and then an, a homecoming, which in Jacob's case is physical and in Joseph's is a reunion. And of course, both of these reconciliations involve weeping and embrace and kiss. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it, when you look at how many similarities, how many little uh, features are mirrored in the two stories. Now, I wonder, as you think of all of the things that we've talked about there, uh, the younger brother, the conflict, the deception, the, the, the exile and the homecoming and reconciliation. 
I wonder, can any of you think of a similar story that Jesus told in the Gospels that also mirrors many of those, those things? It's in the Gospel of Luke, and it is, of course, the prodigal son. And so in Luke 15, Jesus tells a story about a younger and an older brother. And I'm going to quickly read it to you. And as I read it, I want you, if you can remember some of the similarities that I've just drawn out, I want you to listen and see if you can find them in this story as well. So then he said, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hard servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hard servants. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. For they, and they began to be merry. And now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. And his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, these many years I've been serving you, I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And I'm sure as I've read that, just even quickly in your own head, you've noticed there's unity in these stories. And if we time, we could go through all the different little details. And there's a, a theologian called Kenneth Bailey, and he's written a whole book just looking at the Jacob story and the parallels between these two stories. And what we're not saying this morning is that these are mirror images, but we can see that in this Old Testament narrative, Old Testament narrative, there's something familiar to those who were hearing this New Testament story that Jesus is telling. There's enough for there to be an association. And in Luke 15, we have this story that follows the outline of and interacts with these old stories. Um, and so just uh, really quickly, a couple of the things you could pull out. Um, 
And they're not going to be present in both. So there'll be some similarities in Jacob's story, some similarities in Joseph's story. So from the beginning of the story, there's this focus on the father's death. The fact that the young son goes and asks for inheritance is as good as saying, I wish you were dead. And in the Jacob story, of course, very similarly, Jacob thinks he's nearing the end of his life and it's time to pass on the inheritance. And this is interaction happens with Jacob. And then there is this brotherly tension that we talked about, conflict between the brothers. There's resentment. And remember the goat, you know, the mark of deception in the Old Testament stories symbolizes the animosity between the younger and the older brother in the prodigal son story. The older brother, the older son says to his father, all these years you haven't so much as given me a goat to enjoy with my friends. And of course, the younger brother on his return is robed, which is very reminiscent of the Joseph story. And there's the same movement happening, isn't there? There's a younger son leaving home. And you notice that in both the prodigal son story and in Joseph, there's famine in the land. It says in Genesis 47, there was no bread in the land. So it's just like the Joseph story. And then, of course, there's the return, there's the reconciliation. And all of these stories involve an emotional reconciliation, embrace and kiss. Genesis 33, 4 says, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And then in Genesis 45, we have Joseph. It says he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And in Luke 15, 20, and he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And in Luke 15 and in Joseph, you have these two sons who were believed to be dead and have now been recovered as alive. And this is just what Kenneth Bailey says. I'm going to read you this little quote. He says, the vast majority of the elements observed and discussed appear in the Jacob saga. And you could also say the Joseph saga and are then repeated, revised or reversed as they appear in the second. There are too many of them for all of this to be an accident. The author of the parable is clearly creating a new story for a recognisable community that follows the outline and builds upon the old story. With confidence, we can affirm Jesus as the theologian who created these sophisticated intertextual and interlocking stories. So I just want us to think quickly, what is going on here? Why did Jesus give this newly patterned story based on these Old Testament stories in Luke 15? I think it's interesting that Jesus picks two stories that have such resonance with the Jewish people. You know, Jacob really embodies something of the history. His name is becomes Israel and his story of struggle and of exile and encounter with God embodies the story of Israel, of the life and the history of Israel. And then we'll get on. I'm going to talk in a little moment about why the Joseph story is significant to the Jewish people. But these are stories that form part of their history and they meet in this place in Jesus as he tells in this new story with these echoes of old. And remember earlier on, I said, sometimes we don't have to always reconcile all the Old Testament stories until we get to Jesus. And I think that this is one of those moments. Jesus is drawing these stories together and this time the ending is different. The attention moves in the story. I don't know if you noticed from the brother, from the brothers to the father, Jesus re-centers the 
story on himself. And this is a reversal in the story. And reversal is this one of these big things that's really important in the Gospel of Luke. And I think we're given a clue early on in the old stories. Okay, so I think we get a clue about this way of God in the world, about how he reverses things. And the Old Testament writer has given us this indication in Genesis that God's way is not the way of the world. And we talked about this ancient practice of primogeniture. So why did God reverse primogeniture in these stories? Well, it tells us something about how God works. Because in a culture where the firstborn was the dominant and the strong one, God makes a statement that this is not how he works, that he works through those of low status, those considered weaker or lesser or marginalized, or in Joseph's case, the rejected. God is telling us that he reverses power arrangements. And this is a clue here, right here in the beginning, about how God will continue to act and ultimately act through Jesus. We see it in the life and death of Jesus, that God favours that which is perceived weak by the world. And I was just thinking about this this morning as I woke, it's Palm Sunday. And we think, we, we see this morning that as we remember that while Pilate, the Roman governor, was riding in to Jerusalem, with all his imperial might on display that represented all his power and all his authority, we have Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey towards another gate. And uh, Marcus Borg, he says this, the most unthreatening, the most unmilitary mount imaginable, a female nursing donkey with her little colt trotting along beside her, the animal that represented a king coming in peace. God reverses power arrangements. His kingdom is not of this world. And we see it here already, the clue in the Old Testament text. And Jesus is trying to reverse this story. And you start to see little ways how the story's shifting. He's reversing some of the features of these ancient stories. So a couple of little ones. Jacob in the story, he leaves home and he becomes really wealthy and prosperous. And yet in, in the story of the prodigal, it's the opposite. He loses his wealth and he has nothing. And in the Joseph story, um, we have the situation where there's famine, but the father goes to the son because he needs food. And Jesus reverses this pattern in the story where the son returns to the father because he is in need of food. So we start to see the shift that Jesus is trying to reframe the story. Because the thing is, when we read these Old Testament stories on their own without this new story, it can feel a little bit like the promise while it's persistent and we can see God's faithfulness. It, it kind of feels like it hangs on a little bit of a knife edge. You know, this blessing is a burden that it's it's not just, you know, God intended it for good, but it becomes this source of conflict and tension. And we see all these human efforts to make it work and make it happen. And even though they're chosen by God, it's still a troubled and a messy life. And I think it's also worth remembering that these stories don't quite have the happy ending that they should have, that despite a reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, ultimately their descendants become enemies, that Esau's descendants are some of Israel's fiercest enemies, that the patriarchs don't ever own the land that they're promised, and that the story ends in Egypt where the problems are really only beginning. And even though they might occupy the land for a time, it comes with such hardship and struggle and conflict that these stories 
are all awaiting some kind of reconciliation. And it's also interesting that actually, if we think about the audience listening to Jesus in Luke 15, who they most identify with in the story. So in the story of Joseph, Joseph's an interesting one. He gets the blessing, but the line of kings through who Jesus comes actually comes through his older brother, Judah. So Judah is an older brother. And actually the Jews listening to the story see themselves as Judah people, because at this point in their history, the Israelites, the people of Israel are those who are in the northern kingdom and that has ended. And so these are the Judah people. And so in this story, they're listening to Jesus and actually they would see themselves as the older brother. And Jesus is trying to get them to think that there is, in fact, also a problem in the story with the older brother. He wants to remind them about how God works in the world, about how he worked previously in the life of Israel and how he's still working he frames the younger, weaker, the one without the rights, even the one who mistreats his father as the one who's welcomed and reconciled. And this time Jesus writes himself into the story. He's like, here's a story you know, but I'm going to write myself into this story. I'm going to break a pattern to bring about a plan of redemption. And he breaks the cycle of the breakdown of relationship and where we've seen humanity try to make it happen happen it's led to conflict and tension and this story in Luke 15 is radically reframed in light not of the brothers but in light of the father and this image of God as father is what is life-changing and life-giving and this father running a long distance which you all know was completely out of character in their culture for all to see this self-giving action of the father was unique to this story and I love how Jesus even redeems the kiss in this story because if we read the Jacob story Jacob offers, offers his father a kiss to deceive him and now the father kisses the son to restore him and it's in light of this relationship that reconciliation can occur and it's not only this it's that there is not just one winner and one loser but both sons are given an opportunity for restoration and again I love how the Old Testament does this I think we get a little clue that this is what's coming in the story that what Jesus is unpacking in Luke 15 when we go to the text in Genesis <clears throat> I think we get a little picture of it, a little clue from what's happening we know the story of Jacob wrestling with God we've all heard sermons on it but I don't think we often think of it in the context of his reconciliation with his brother but these two events happened one after the other. Jacob had two encounters. The first one in Genesis 32 he faced God and he left changed but he left limping and in Genesis 33, he faces his brother. And it's this picture that God meets him in this moment of struggle. He's so fearful going to meet Esau. And God meets him in that moment of struggle, in that moment of conflict. And he transforms him and then follows him into the transformation of his relationship with his brother. And this picture of reconciliation, of one without the other, of reconciling with God and then with with humanity with our brother and with our sister is so reminiscent of what Paul teaches in the Gospels you know he says in Ephesians we can't be one with Christ and not one with each other these things run together and Jesus emphasizes the role of the father in restoring relationships between us and him but also with one another and of course 
in this story, this time, Jesus will be the one who will wrestle for the blessing. So we don't have to. He's the one who walks away with the limp and with the scars. And I love how the Old Testament stories get brought to completion in the Jesus story. And really quickly, um, the Joseph story holds so much of the gospel narrative in it. And I just want to unpack that really quickly for you. Because Joseph's story is funny little, it's like a little mini story, a little novella in the middle of the narrative. It's this bridge that kind of connects this family to the people of Israel, this, this family life to oppression and liberation. And it's this little mini narrative and it's making quite a grand statement in and of itself. Um, and so Joseph's story is interesting because as I said before, you have this picture where Joseph gets the blessing, but the lineage, the king, the kingship lineage comes to the older brother, to Judah. And so why this disruption of a pattern? It, it's another moment where we should pay attention. Joseph's faithfulness at each turn of the story um, and Joseph's little story centers on this picture of being a blessing to all peoples of the earth, which was part of the Abraham's covenant. It's a little mini salvation story and it points us to the gospel to come. And probably actually of all the Old Testament stories, the Joseph is the most close sort of parallel to the gospel story that we can find. Um, it's like a mini salvation story. It is, in a sense, a little in packaged in itself a little story that unpacks the whole bible narrative um, and so we don't have time but i'm just going to quickly throw out some of the parallels to you you might have seen them before and they might be new to you but we have joseph so i want you to think about the gospel story about the you know the jesus story while i say these things joseph's a jew who's rejected by his own he's mocked for who he said he's going to be he is sold for silver he is stripped of his garments and thrown into a pit and the pit the word for pit in the old testament means grave and then through him god saves the nations and then if you dig into the story if you go to genesis 40 and you look at joseph's prison experience you've got all these little pointers that point to the passion narrative because he's in prison with two with two criminals with a cupbearer which represents wine and a baker, which of course represents bread. And both of their dreams involve three days. And when Joseph interprets the baker's dream, what does he say to him? He says, in three days, you will hang on a tree. And the Luke uses the Greek word for tree for the cross. So we have two criminals, one restored, one died. And we have in Jesus, both the cupbearer and the baker, the bread and the wine. And then, of course, in Joseph's story, he's exalted by Pharaoh. Every knee is made to bow to him. And this is exactly what God does for Jesus. And when Joseph's brothers reject him, they have no idea what's going to happen. And when the Jews reject Jesus, they have no idea of what is going to be of what's going to come. The last will be first and the humble will be exalted. And so Joseph is this little example of of the fulfillment that will take place in Jesus. And then we have, you know, the Joseph story where he saves the nations from starvation. And it's, you know, in Genesis 47, it's the, the, the Egyptians come and they say, give us bread for why should we die? We die. And then Jesus comes offering himself as the bread of life. 
And then the only two times in scripture we have this picture of a beloved son who's believed to be dead and is found to be alive. And uh, and then it, it's I just think it's like there's so many little things. You have that picture where the brothers don't recognize Joseph. And you think ahead to the moment when the disciples don't recognize Jesus. And they both use the same words when they are revealing themselves. Uh, Joseph says, it is I. And it's the same phrase that Jesus uses to his disciples. And Joseph says in Genesis 43, peace be with you. Just like that moment in John 20, when Jesus is with his disciples and he brings his peace to them. And of course, the book of Genesis concludes with one of those famous and important verses you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so what we see in the story of Joseph is a pattern for God's work in the future. It's an affirmation of the gospel story that Paul echoes in Romans, what the world would intend for as the greatest evil God would use to bring about his promise of goodness. So that's Romans 8, 28, that the heart of that message is, you know, what the world intends for the greatest of evil, God would use to bring about his promise of goodness. And so I just want us to see this morning, I'm going to, I have a couple of minutes left. And so I'm going to really, I'm going to run through the last two themes of barrenness and blessing. But I hope that was helpful this morning to think about the way in which the Old Testament interacts with the New Testament, how we see the story being reconciled in Jesus. But I just picked these two themes um, that I think it's also important to highlight because they're really important themes in the patriarch's narrative. Um, each time the promise comes in the midst of barrenness. And I just think it's interesting that the son who the promise is passed to is born in the context of, have, of, of a barren mother and another clue to us as to how God works in the world and will ultimately work. Because barrenness was another one of those things that culturally was thought to be a curse, was a source of shame and a sign of weakness. And it's through this that God chooses to bring about his promise, that even when something looks dead, God brings life, which of course sounds exactly like what happens with Jesus. And I think God wants to point us to understand that hope comes not through our own efforts, not through something that we can accomplish ourselves, but through his faithfulness, that the God who hears cries, he responds with life. And this is a narrative that's echoed throughout the New Testament, that God hears and responds. He cares for the barren and the lowly, the unloved and the forgotten. This theme runs throughout all of those who gathered around Jesus. Luke 14, 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Barrenness is a source of hope in scripture. And then the theme of blessing, just to finish, it's, it's there at the very beginning of scripture. And it is such a big part of the narrative of Genesis 12 to 15. We've already pointed out how blessing goes against the traditional system. God chooses the weaker way and this characteristic is played out in the life of Israel he instructs them you'll see later on in Exodus how he instructs them in the way of Yahweh to remember the widow the orphan the the foreigner and then in the life of Jesus he moves towards those whom society considers less than or weaker the younger one represents much more than we understand it to 
It's the gospel already being proclaimed in Genesis. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. So these are not just stories about God's preferential treatment of a particular group. It's telling us about who God is. This is the blessing of God. As, as Jesus expressed in the Beatitudes, God doesn't favour the strong. In Jesus' weakest moment was his strongest. And I said earlier about how the complexity of these stories that we're looking at. And in Jacob, I think in particular, there's this complex, messy human, you know, and in this weird way, Jacob deceives his way through to the promise and the blessing, and he becomes wealthy and prosperous. And then we've Joseph, who's faithful at each turn, and yet, you know, he faces he faces hardship after hardship. And it's kind of an uneasy narrative in which to understand the theme of blessing. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable. You know, why would God allow bless someone like Jacob who behaves in the way he does? Until we read the story, it's scandalous. It provokes a reaction in us and it goes against cultural assumptions, probably also assumptions of privilege, which I have to reflect on myself. But it is uneasy and it's an easy way to understand blessing and makes me uncomfortable. And I was thinking about this and I was reading a commentary by Walter Brueggemann on Genesis. And this is what he says. And I think this is I love this. He says, Jacob is a scandalous challenge to the world because the God who calls him is also scandalous. And I think in the life of Jacob, we get a glimpse of God's grace already at work in the world. It is not human character that draws the blessing. It is God's goodness and bless the blessing that we understand in Genesis begins in Genesis 1 and 2 in creation and it centers on this word good God speaks to creation and it's the blessing of goodness it's at the heart of scripture and Genesis ends with the same idea that God means it for good you planned this for evil and God planned it for good. No matter how messy the situation, God seeks to bring good or goodness into it. And the dimensions of God's goodness encompass all of life, material and spiritual, physical and emotional. But actually in each of these stories, and with this I finish, the blessing is ultimately linked with God's presence. And I think this is really challenging. I think there's lots of interesting theologies of blessing out there in the church. But I think when we look at Genesis and these stories and when we try and understand what God's blessing looks like, twice God says to, to Isaac, I will be with you and will bless you. And then uh, the Lord says to Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And then we see consistently how God is with Joseph, even when he doesn't look like he's being very blessed in his life. And so over and over again, I think God is proclaiming to the reader of Genesis that blessing is preeminently about a relationship with him, about his presence, and how God keeps seeking out a way through the story to be with people people it's not just part of the blessing this is at the very core and I think we have to ask ourselves when we read these stories do we only think Joseph is blessed at the end when he's in he's elevated to his position of power do we only think that Jacob is blessed when he's wealthy and able to return to the brother or is the blessing part of the whole story so do I think blessing comes materially? I do, but I think we need to be really careful that God always inverts and reverses the story 
that the blessing was in every situation. The promise was that he would be with them and he would lead it towards goodness, even if the goodness wasn't realized until the Jesus story. And so at the very end, this promise is left hanging. They've left the land they were promised and they are now in Egypt. And within a generation, generation Joseph will have been forgotten. And in Genesis 46, what does God say to Jacob? I will go down with you to Egypt. I will go with you. And this is at the heart of the promise of God. As we see, and as we see, the story does not go as planned and how we might think it should as the chosen people of God. And I think without trying to tie this up in a neat bow, it's much like, you know, our own story of the last year. And it's hard at times to see the blessing. It's hard to hear the promise. But I just I just felt, you know, to finish today, to hear that word to us, that word spoken to each of us, that God's word and his word of blessing to us is I will go down with you. And I think that's the promise and the blessing that God still wants us to hear today. And that is me. I am. I've given you enough. I think. <laughs> I oh, my goodness, Lucy, that was just phenomenal. Honestly, I couldn't write quick enough. I think I had like fire coming off my face. Yes, I know. And I, I, I probably spoke very fast, but I was like, I'm gonna, I get it. I'll get it in. <laughs> it was. You've opened up Genesis to me in a way that I had never seen it before that like that's that's like reading scripture for the first time reading it with you and I should I should say I'll not take credit I'm studying this year in um, WTC and one of my modules just happened to be on reading the New Testament through the Old Testament and my lecturer is this amazing guy and um, he is actually writing his whole PhD on on the Joseph story and the gospel narrative so I will give him credit for unpacking this for me and I'm just giving you what I've learned in the last year so I I'm glad that I hope it's helpful and I'm, it was the same for me as well that was incredible and WTC that's Westminster Theological yeah Westminster Theological College, which 24-7 kind of has a bit of a link with now, and they've developed a um, a program around church planting and theology as well. So, um, yeah, highly recommended if anybody is thinking about studying theology as well. So, yeah, that's yeah. what I think. Lucy, bless you so much. Thank you. You've just, like, poured out, like, you must be knackered, but thank you so much for everything that, um, yeah, that you've shared.